then things aren't that attractive anymore. This is what's going on in this text. You can't judge a book by its cover. Um, I want to just label, label two different points uh, for today, and we're going to take some time a little bit later in our service just to um, set aside our new deacons to, to start serving this week. As we um, start with our first executive meeting on Tuesday night, um, we're going to set aside Mike and Ian in, in a moment, and it's going to lead right out of the content of chapter 16 very well. And so I've decided to just take some time there, um, hence there only being two points. But let's look at this. Um, new beginnings, write this down somewhere. New beginnings, God's purpose is beyond our disaster. God's purpose or his providence, you can put another word in there if you like, his, um, his providence he's providing is beyond our disaster. The first five verses of the text that Cheryl read so beautifully for us. As readers of the Bible, we are allowed to witness things behind the scenes. Often I mention this because it's really a thrill to read the scriptures and to study the scriptures and get a, a perspective of things that the characters themselves during these events in history uh, never had. And so we're allowed as the, the privileged readers of the Bible to witness things that are hidden and things that are private in the storyline of the Bible, like Samuel's little tiff last Sunday. In chapter 15, verse 11, he cries out to the Lord all through the night. And we guessed at a few reasons why he was upset. Maybe it was Saul's disobedience. Here's the hero, the man that I've been privileged to anoint as king, and he's been disobedient. And, uh, and for a godly man, somebody who's been faithful, uh, this is heartbreaking. Maybe it was the missed potential of Saul's life, how that Sam might have had this great you know, list of things that Saul would accomplish as the first king of God's people, and now he had missed his potential altogether. Maybe it's the consequences of the people. Maybe he had really, you know, accepted the idea that Saul was now, you know, who he is, and the people of God were going to be the ones that were going to suffer. And uh, throughout the Bible history, we've got examples of men and women who were very deeply grieved by the future of God's people and the consequences of sin for the people of God. Maybe that's what was overcoming uh, Samuel as he wept and, and, and cried out to the Lord through the night. Primarily, it seems that he was considering his whole life work. Um, this is the thing that I've been called to do. I've been called to anoint the new king. And I mean, this is going to be massive. I'm going to be recorded in history as being the one, the prophet, who was responsible for now introducing the new king to be a ruler over God's people. And this whole you know, plan of life, this whole summary of my life's work had now come to nothing. And um, frustration reigns. I was thinking of some of the other feelings that Samuel might have had. Discouragement, perhaps. Or a lack of fulfillment in his ministry. I don't know if you felt like this. These are words that we can't um, read and just apply to Samuel. These are real life words. I don't know if you've ever felt frustrated. Surely you have. Um, surely you've been discouraged at times, maybe even this morning. Maybe a lack of fulfillment in your life, lack of fulfillment in your ministry. Uh, the thing that's going to be summed up and totaled at the end of your life and that you will present to God. That, that thing, when you consider that total, it's, there's a bit of a lack of, of excitement and a, a lack of sense of accomplishment when it comes to faithfulness in ministry. Maybe there's an uncertainty. And I'm sure that Samuel felt this way, that there was uncertainty about the future uh, for him and for God's people. 
time passes by. We don't know how long between chapters. It seems like there's been some time and Samuel hasn't progressed. He hasn't grown out of his frustration or grown beyond his lack of fulfillment or uncertainty. And God has to visit him. And God comes um, into his situation, which was, in his opinion, a disaster. And really, we would sum it to be a disaster as well. And in verse 1 of the text, he says, how long will you grieve over Saul? And the, the Hebrew language speaks about a continuous action there. How long will you continue to grieve over Saul? And he has the doctrine we need. This is the thing that we need to grasp from the passage and apply to our lives. The theology that really applies to all times of all ages. And here it comes. God was saying, if you keep thinking about Saul, Samuel, if you keep thinking about your circumstance, if you keep thinking about the consequences of these actions and the, the, the situation you feel yourself in, you will never stop grieving. That's the point. You've got to learn to look beyond to something other, and that's what comes up in the next part of the sentence. How long will you grieve? And here's the theology, since I have been the one to work this all out, since I have been the one to reject the king, why are you the one grieving? And I, and I pondered long and hard on this. Here's God saying, what are you doing? What are you crying about? What are you doing weeping through the night about the situ situation? Why aren't you moving beyond the situation if you really believe, prophet of mine, that I'm the one in control of these events? I did it, not you. You're not responsible. I'm the one that was absolutely right in the events of the rejection of the king in chapter 15. And I'm the one that has, will, will never forget my people. I'm the one that's in control. So for goodness sake, take your horn, fill it with oil. You've got some anointing to do. There's a plan beyond the disaster. There's a, a providence beyond the circumstance. That's the theology I learn of here. And God's sovereignty in that providence, God's sovereignty in that plan. Man, the reason we can go beyond disaster, let's be honest with each other, is for this reason only. God's got a plan beyond it. I don't know of anybody else that's got a plan. Not a successful one. I can guarantee you that. Our plans lead toward disaster. I don't know if you've noticed that. Our human plans lead toward disaster. The people themselves had chosen a king for themselves, the Bible says. And we're warned. This is going to lead to disaster. But they went ahead, nonetheless, planned a king, chose a king, and this is where they find themselves in. While he was a good-looking king on the outside, while he was strong, it seemed that the, the appearance described of, uh, the appearances of Saul described in the Bible are of strength, a head and shoulders, big, strong, kind of burly, warrior-type-looking king. This whole idea of him being intimidating is, is part of the, the description of Saul. I mean, this is who they chose, somebody who would stabilize the economy, you know? This is the, the leader kind of image that is given in the text, and we looked at that when he was chosen. While that was all true, he was disobedient to God. Think of the irony here. God's people choose for themselves a king who is disobedient to God. That ain't going to work. That's what the author of chapter 16 is saying is a disaster. And it has happened already. Here's the point. God has got plans, and they are better. God's purpose goes beyond the disaster, and it comes in the form, listen to me very carefully, it comes in the form of a provision. A provision. So in my point on the screen, I said God's purpose beyond the disaster, but I want to explain the purpose now. The purpose comes to us. 
the purpose of God beyond our disaster, whatever that might be for you, comes in the form of a provision. And the word provision is used nine times in the chapter. So for a, a study of chapter 16, you can't avoid it. You might not see it in the English all that much, but you definitely will see the repeat word and root, root of the same word nine times throughout the chapter. And it is this idea of God's provision. Pack your oil. I'm sending you to Bethlehem. No mistake. For I have provided for myself, not your choice, my choice. I provided for myself a king. And I stress the word provided in that verse. Find the verse in your, in your text there, underline the word provided. God's word from chapter 15 now fulfilled. Verse 28 of the previous chapter said, I'm going to provide, now that the kingdom has been torn from Saul, I'm going to give it to a neighbor of yours who is better for you, is what God said. Now fulfilled in a better king, God's better plan than our own plans. Now, I can't help but pause for a minute and think about providence. Because the word is stressed nine times, because it's a word that speaks of great theological themes, I have to dwell there just for a minute and consider God's provision for our greatest need. That's what's happening here. There's a need, disaster, God's plan beyond the disaster, meeting the needs of the people. It's better than their own providence. And I start thinking about Genesis, how that there was a covering of nakedness that was Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their nakedness. And I'm thinking of God's better provision of the animal that died and the skins that covered, his, that covered their nakedness and how that points to Jesus. But there's, there's great examples in the Bible over and over again of this idea of providence in the midst of our disaster, in the midst of our human need. As sinners, our greatest need is forgiveness, according to the Bible. Our greatest need is, is not to be delivered from the consequences of our sin. That's not our greatest need. So often we pray for that. Lord, rescue me from this financial crisis because I've made some really foolish choices. I have sinned. I have stolen. I have been corrupt or whatever the case may be. Please forgive me and fix the consequence. And that's not the issue. The main issue, the main need that exists for us as humankind is atonement. Where God's God's uh, record of wrong hangs over us and we are indebted to him to a penalty of eternal separation from him. And we talked about this last week as we explained the whole idea of hell a little bit and what sin's consequences are. That is the context from which we come out of chapter 15. So it's fresh in our mind. If you need that sermon, go ahead and grab it online. But now we, we, we consider the, the solution to the issues of last Sunday. The forgiveness that we need, the atonement that we need as humankind. But who is good enough? Who is good enough to earn that kind of atonement? Who is good enough to earn, you know, that kind of forgiveness when our wrongs stand clearly before a holy judge? Put another way, who would be so bold enough to face God one day? and suggest that his or her good balances or outweighs his or her bad, I ask. Who would be so bold to stand before a holy God and say, I've got enough, I've got what it takes to earn me that kind of favor, which would mean forgiveness before you, holy judge, and the, and the, the ramifications of that, which would be eternal life in the presence of God forever. Who would be so bold? Praise God, we don't, we don't need to be bold enough. 
Or put it this way, praise God, he has provided for us to be bold, like um, Hebrews says, to approach the throne of grace. And it's all because of this little word. He has provided, and specifically, he has provided in a substitute. From the beginning of Scripture to the end, the word provide has been used to describe purpose. It has. And so you will see the purposes of God after or in disaster, in human need of sin and corruption and, um, I mean, the political turmoil that the, the children of Israel find themselves in right now. You will find God's providence specifically talking about atonement for the transgressor. Atonement and forgiveness for the sinner. I've heard this language before. I mentioned Genesis. How about another one from a little bit later in the book of Genesis, which is so specific? Abraham begs God for a son. In his old age, um, God provides a son. That's a miracle baby, and it's a, a promised miracle baby in old age. I mean, this is, uh, you know, we all stand in wonder of the unusual nature of the birth. And then in gospel fashion, God says, you know what, Abraham, to test your faith, I want you to go and lay that son on the altar. Let me put that in plain language for you. I want you to kill your own son. I want you to love me enough, to trust me enough, to lay that son, that your prized possession, love. I mean, this is a special miracle baby. I want you to take him up the hill, get the picture, and I want you to go and lay him down on the altar. And so Abraham, in, in obedience to God, I believe trusting God wholly for things. When we study this at some other time, I'll get into it. Resurrection and other things are in my mind at the moment, trusting in that way. Just to kind of you know, understand the brutality of, of what has been requested here by God. And he takes his son up the hill. And as they're walking, this is the picture. Isaac's got the, the wood on his back. I, I start thinking about somebody else who carried wood on his back. And as they're walking up, he says to dad, you know, dad, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, uh, but where's the sacrifice? And this is, this is the word that, that Abraham gives to his son. He says, God will provide for himself. I mean, it's the exact same language as chapter 16 in 1 Samuel. God will provide for himself. You tried the first time and messed up. Now I'm going to provide a lamb for the burnt offering. And then later in the text, we read the whole narrative and how he's rescued by the, the angel of the Lord right at the, the last minute. And, um, and, and God steps in. And as he turns his head, there, stuck in a thicket, is a ram, stuck, by the, you know, stuck in the thicket. And um, they can take the lamb and they can sacrifice that as a substitute for the son. And the gospel just comes radiating out of Genesis chapter 22. The language, man, the language God will provide for himself is what ties me to 1 Samuel as an illustration of what's going on here. God's purpose is way beyond disaster, church. Way beyond disaster. I think of a thousand years after chapter 16 in 1 Samuel, where God would choose and he would provide the ultimate king slash savior for us, Jesus. Through un unusual circumstances of miraculous birth to carry the wood and be laid down on the altar as our provided sacrifice. All of our lives are marked by measures of disaster, and I don't want to get into that necessarily this morning. I would just like for you to think about it. I'd like for you to think about your little disaster. I mean, I know what some of your disasters are. I'm your pastor. I've spent time with you this week even, and I've been, and I want to 
pick on anyone specifically, but there's been certain disasters that have come into my office and certain, certain disasters that I've gone to go and visit in the church. Disasters, man, breaking your heart, tearing your life apart. That disaster, in different, whatever measure it might be, I want to say there's good news. God has a purpose beyond your disaster. He does. He has a purpose beyond your disaster, and it comes in the form of a new beginning that is available to you this morning. A brand spanking new beginning if you would trust God's provision. All I can say is to stop turning to our own provision like the children of Israel did, seeking their own king, seeking their own fix, seeking their own solution, but turning to God's provision, particularly the provision of his chosen savior, the savior king, Jesus Christ. Can I I just say this off the cuff? Won't you consider Jesus first? I'm just saddened by so many testimonies of, I've tried everything. Pastor, come and see me. Or I've tried everything. What what can I do to be obedient to God? I'm saying, try first going to Jesus. Try going there first and save yourself uh, the escalation of your disaster and the escalation of your situation, trusting in Him and trusting in His provision. Second point I'd like to make from chapter 16 New beginnings, God's purpose beyond our disaster in His provision. The second thing I want to talk about is the first impressions. First impressions. God's view is beyond our perception. I've chosen these words very carefully. God's view. Something happens in this passage that rocked my world. I, I've always had an understanding of, um, of David's choice here, the, the, the God's choice of David but this week, I had my eyes open to some of the language again, and I, I want to share that with you now. God's view is beyond our perception. Verses 6 through to 13. Just as a matter of interest, I'm going to leave the, the last portion of the passage for you. Um, if you want to learn more about, uh, I've got a third point that I decided not to share for time's sake. But if you're interested in the, in the portion there, David's service and the and the, the, the torment that comes from God, I'd love to have some conversations with you over coffee. Um, and we can talk about those things. Very, very interesting verses there. The, the music that was used there to, to calm Saul down in his moments of, of stress and despair. And um, God's providence there. And, and David's, the sovereignty of God in bringing David to the court. That's the main point of the last portion of the, of the word there. But from verses 6 to 13, let's consider one more thing in the time we have. Sam gets on his donkey. And he's off to Bethlehem, the place from which God would choose royalty. Let that sink in. No mistake. Jesse has eight sons. Uh, Which one will be king? The first one comes out, and sadly, Sam falls prey to our human tendency to look on the outward appearance, to consider the perception of an individual before considering what's in the heart of an individual. And so Eliab comes up, he's, he's a real looker, man. He, he, he's the kind of leader that's going to turn heads by Sam's um, impression. Um, I, I want you to pray for me in this. I was just thinking of the prophet. It's, it's sad that you can't even trust the prophet, you know, to make the right call. And, and the issue at hand here is the issue of discernment. It's that ability, that wisdom given from above, whereby somebody can decide between black and white, you know, right and wrong. And pastors need to have that discernment more than anyone in this world. And so I want you to please to pray with regards to this text that I would be a discerning individual as I shepherd this flock 
uh, pray for our elders, that we'd be discerning. We, we pray, I think, maybe every time we meet, I've heard that prayer come out of somebody's mouth. Lord, we're looking for wisdom. We, we are praying for discernment as we make decisions pertaining to the life of our church. So please continue to pray for, that, for us in that. What's, what, that's the sad side. What, what the glad side is, is that we have a wise God, you know? So where the, where the man of God fails, there's a wise God, and God steps in and says to, to Samuel, no, that's not my intention. This is not, not the guy that I've chosen to be, to be king. And I, I, I made some application straight away, realizing that we, as humankind, are prone to self-appoint saviors. That's what we do. When there's a disaster, we, we like to jump in and self-appoint saviors based on impression, a solution to you know, need, and a solution to personal dilemma, uh, a solution to those impasses we spoke about previously in the book, where you look at the valley and you don't know how you're going to get through and navigate through this thing. You know, our life gets that way. We, we tend to, at that time, self-appoint certain saviors. Any event or understanding or impression without God will most probably lead to a disaster or lead to a big mistake. Dale Davis said this, he said, sometimes God has to save us from our saviors. And I like it. I understand that. I identify with that. God has to step in like he did here and say, hold on, I'm going to save you from the saviors that you're trying to erect here based on impression or, or first impressions or, or based on an outward appearance or something like that. We must be thankful, church. We must be thankful when God steps in to say no sometimes to our prayers. People ask me all the time, I've been praying for this, I've been praying for this, I've been praying for this, and I haven't had any answer from God. I'm saying, you've received an answer. And the answer for right now is no. God, God is definitely answering, and it's for your good and for your, um, for your delight in Him. God is doing that to save us from ruin. We must learn as a church, I believe, not to be so easily impressed. Learning from Samuel on this occasion. In verse 7, we are taught God's principle for operation. And I'd like us to think deeply here. His principle for operation, notice the word look in the passage. It's, it's, a, it's repeated in that verse about, you know, a bunch of times, a whole handful of times. And that's why I entitled the sermon, Look. For this reason, some scholars have said that this verse 7 stands as the key verse for the entire book. First and second Samuel hinge on this one verse, some scholars have said, verse 7. This sermon stands out as, as that sermon to look into the operation of God. What is the principle of operation when God's dealing with circumstances and people and situations? Let's read the verse. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the heart of his stature, which was the case with Saul, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as a man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now zoom in on that last phrase, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is not saying, God is not saying that outward appearance um, is, is the issue. Whether you look good or you look bad. I mean, when they appoint David, for goodness sake, David is ruddy and, and beautiful, the Bible says, beautiful in appearance. So it's not like God turned away from Eliab and said, well, he's too good looking and then went for like, you know, outrageously ugly. 
That was not the, not the plan of God at all. What God is saying is that outward appearance, good or bad, doesn't matter. That's not the issue. What matters is God's look. Hence the title of the sermon. God's view on this person. And I looked at this very, very closely. What is interesting is the word that is chosen for the word look. It is the same word that is used in verse 1 for provision. And I just like about lost my mind, fell off my chair when I discovered that this week. It's the same sovereign providence of God used here in a different form in the Hebrew, but the root word is exactly the same. Now suddenly I learned something that when what is being communicated in this verse is more than what we often think the verse to mean, where people say that God is looking for a person with a good heart. It's more than that. I mean, godliness is good. A good heart is good. But the text is saying something far more than just somebody who's godly, somebody who is good-looking on the inside. The text is saying more than somebody who's just got a heart like God's. I've heard many preachers preach this passage and say, what God is looking for is not a soul, good and up, you know, good looking on the outside and tall in stature and all that kind of thing without a heart like God's. And I'm saying, David had a heart like God's. We know that from the psalmist as well, how that he would describe it that way, David that way. But the text is saying more than just the person that has a heart like God's. What is being said here is that we can't see purpose with our little eyes. The text is saying. God's view is different to ours. He looks, apparently, according to his will. God views according to his own intentions. What's behind the, the little verse 7 here in teaching us about God's, you know, God's choice in the situation is this, that David was a man of God's choosing. The man that God had set his heart upon is the way that the Hebrew language would describe David. God's views beyond our perception. All these things are right. Let me, let me sum it up this way. This is about God's sovereign purpose, this verse. This is not about the quality of the man. And suddenly I start to realize that's the gospel, isn't it? We are not saved by our own merits. Since when did God look upon a person and say, well, you fit the bill and you don't. I'm going to choose you. If you're in a life group right now, we studied through chapter one of Ephesians. I hope you enjoyed that because that's, that's in a nutshell exactly what's going on here. God not choosing based on our merit, but unmerited favor to us. It's the way we would describe it theologically. When we receive grace from God and our salvation being grace is a free gift, it is unmerited. It's not like God's chalking us up and saying, you're better than the next person, so you get chosen. No. This is God's sovereign purpose. The security of David's throne would rest on one foundation, and that would be God's promises and not David's performance. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. This would be radically different from Saul's reign, by the way. Our perceptions are not reliable, but God's look on the heart is. Because God's look, God's view is unlimited. We need to learn this morning how to look as God sees. And I'm going to give you two examples that line up here in Scripture. David, God choosing not even worth mentioning son 
of Jesse. Here's my boys. David's out in the field. Not even worth mentioning. That's God's choice. The littlest, smelliest, let's be honest, unlikeliest candidate to do his will. That's David. And oh, the better David? What about the better David? God would choose the just one of us, the not in the right place or from the right place, shouldn't be suffering because he's the Messiah, rejected, but the cornerstone, unlikely candidate to do his will. His name's Jesus. His name's Jesus. We fail to see Jesus because we put too much stock in appearance, is what has been said in chapter 16. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 53. I've got to go there. He was despised and rejected by men. Speaking of Christ. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was looked down upon. Despised. He was looked down upon. King of kings. Our view is unreliable. We esteemed him not when we should have esteemed him. Somebody else said, with the right view, reading chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, you can't help feeling that you're in the presence of Jesus. Can't. God chooses the unlikely, church. God chooses the unlikely for one reason. You know why? Because he chooses, and he can. It is his choice and it's for his good pleasure. Man, that's how the story ends. And I'm, I glory in the Savior that we have, the unlikely chosen for our salvation. Two points. New beginnings, what to do. First impressions and how to respond. Not looking on the appearance. But starting to view people, viewing situations as God would purposely, according to his will, Decide and choose. Samuel takes the oil. He anoints David and a rush of the spirit. Listen to me carefully. A rush of the spirit comes upon him. We've heard this before with Saul. But I started to think, you know, this, of this phrase, the rush of the spirit. And how God now was, listen carefully. He was equipping the man for the task that God had purposed for him. I could not help at that moment thinking about Acts chapter 6 in light of our church life. How that in Acts 6 where the first deacons were elected to office, the, the instruction given was to find men who were full of the Spirit. I'll give you the verse. I think I've got it here. Acts 6, 3 and 4. Find men, seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, the Bible says. What a beautiful time you know, to what we're about to do now. I'm going to ask Mike and, and Ian, please, to come forward. God has chosen, you can come now, gents. God has chosen, I believe, through the, the instrument of the congregationalism. We're Baptists, and so we have, at our church meeting, we've, we've voted on this. He's chosen two deacons to be uh, servants here of our church family. Come stand aside, Mike. And I believe today is the day where we pray that God would fill these men of the Spirit. We've seen. We've seen in their testimony, we've seen in their service already that God has been using both of these men in the life of our church. But we're going to pray for power beyond yourselves. That's what I'm going to pray for.
this morning. So pray for power beyond yourselves so that you can serve as deacons. And we're going to do that right now as we commit these, these brothers to the Lord. I'm going to ask the elders that are here, only one of our elders, Colin, because Bruce is actually recovering from surgery. Um, but Colin's here with us to come and join me, if you don't mind, Colin. We believe that God has, oh, sorry, good catch, T. God has um, ordained you to be deacons here in our church by the vote of the church. And I want to just, by nod of the head, you don't have to even reply. Just by nod of the head would be fine. Will you affirm your allegiance to church and to Christ and to the scriptures? That's fantastic. And um, in doing that, we know that these men committed to Christ, committed to the church, committed to the scriptures, will serve wholeheartedly and faithfully. That's the ultimate question that I could ask of you gents today. And I know that we've talked about this before, that the Lord is going to help you in this. We want to set you aside for that. Congregation, we also have um, a part to play. And so church members, I'm, I'm just speaking to members now for a moment, if you don't mind, guests. Will you be members of the church, acknowledge and affirm these brothers as deacons? Will you esteem them, encourage them? Will you cooperate with them to perform all the duties of a deacon? And if you will, I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet right now. Thank you. Take a look at the people that have said they're going to support you there. Fantastic. Therefore, Ian and Mike, I charge you in the name of the Lord Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you ever strive to fill your office to the best of your knowledge, and that you seek divine guidance through the Scriptures in all your work. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for raising up two men to fill very important service slots in our church leadership team at this point. I want to thank you, Father, for the gifts that you have given them specifically. Lord, I want to thank you for the, the road that they've traveled of faith and the road that they've traveled of service. Lord, we recognize this. And Father, we, we want to come beside these two men and offer our support today before you. And pray, Lord, that you would equip these men beyond their own ability. We recognize your choice in the man, just like we've seen in chapter 16. And now pray for a rush of the Spirit, Lord, to enable them to perform all their duties with excellence. So that our church may, may thrive and flourish by the grace of God alone. We pray this in all God's people said. As we uh, close our service, I was uh, thinking of something permanent from the text that I want to just leave you with as a, as a benediction for today. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul, and we know that this is the same as David's, but there was a big difference. Some of you might be thinking, you know, that what's the difference? We've got this guy that failed in this other king that now is, is God's chosen man, and yet the Spirit filled both. What is the difference? And there's a little phrase in your Bible that we need to underline, we need to emphasize. And it's this little phrase, from that day forward. It's different. It's in addition to what happened previously with Saul. It's the one thing that sets these two situations apart. The one was permanent, the one was not. And man, my, my mind again just started clicking over the gears. 
200 years later. In the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, there'd be a very special reference to the place from which David would come. The place that Samuel finds himself in right now. They're sitting in the little town of Bethlehem. And a prophecy was mentioned a little bit later, 200 years later. 200 years later! That's a long time. God's purpose beyond our disaster. But you, O Bethlehem, you are a little town among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who will be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth from old, from ancient of days. And then a thousand years pass from this occasion where the oil was poured onto David's head. A thousand years later. And John would say this. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? God uses the unlikely, those of smelly shepherd beginnings to save and to rule as king, king of kings forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your your word, how it pulls together around chapter 16. In 1 Samuel, Lord, we've seen how the Genesis account of our own attempts to cover our nakedness are really pathetic. And then, Lord, your provision being ample, more than sufficient for us to be considered forgiven, considered righteous, inheriting eternal life. Lord, as we ponder on these things now, Lord, for the next week, as we enter into further Bible study in Ephesians through our life groups, I want to pray that prayer of Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, Father, would you enlighten our minds and our hearts to know you more. Pray, God, that our church would be marked by a deep knowledge of our Lord. Father, where the gospel emerges from the pages of Scripture, may our hearts well up with praise and thanksgiving for your providence, your provision beyond our disasters. And Lord, we didn't do anything to deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. It comes as grace, as grace. A free gift because of your choosing. And for that, Lord, forever, we will give you thanks. Amen.